That music means your next hour is going to be about connection. Welcome to This Show is All About You, a show dedicated to discussing and experiencing the things we all have in common. When you and me become we and explore what it means for all of us. Here's your host, historian, writer, social commentator, and a whole lot of other things, J.D.K. Winnikin. And hello again to all of you listening out there. Thank you so much for joining me for this next hour on This Show is All About You, where we talk about the things going on in the world today, going on around us, and hopefully get underneath some of the generalized narratives about it to find those areas where we can connect. And there's probably more of those areas in most situations than we think. It just takes some work. It takes some time. It takes some self-introspection and it takes some getting comfortable with discomfort. But that's what this show is about. And I'm really happy to have you here. If you would like to know more about me, you can check out my website, wordsbyjdk.com. You can also find me on social media at Facebook, Instagram, and the X. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you'll find me rather easily. Would love to connect with you there and get your thoughts on the show, thoughts on other things you'd like me to talk about, and really just to, you know, connect. Uh, a quick thank you at the top of the show here to our longtime sponsor, Airway Science for Kids, a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth through the exploration of aerospace careers, of which there are hundreds in that expanding industry. Yet they don't just do it by telling kids what jobs are out there, as important as that is, but they also take a much more comprehensive approach that helps kids better get to understand themselves, connect with themselves, and thus become better able to connect with their families and with their communities. And that just benefits everybody inside the aerospace industry and outside. If you'd like to know more about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, please check out their website at airsci.org. And you'll hear more about them during the show breaks. Okay, so um, obviously a very busy week. I talked last week about the unfolding crisis um, in Israel between the state of Israel and Hamas with uh, lots of people in Gaza kind of caught in the middle of all of that. And that is going to be still where we spend the majority of our day today. But first, as we always do on this show, let's kick off uh, our discussion today by taking a look at some news events from the past week. It's a segment I call, What in the World is Going On? I am especially grateful to the United States. Our agreements with President Biden are being implemented, and they are being implemented very accurately. Attackums have proven themselves. The Attackums is a ground-launched ballistic missile system. With a range of up to 300 kilometers, they can hit deep behind the lines, in action here in South Korea. Ukraine has long been asking for them. But the U.S. hesitated to deliver for fear of escalation. Of course, I lead every show as I committed to when the war began with an update on what is happening in Ukraine. And despite the fact uh, that Israel and that part of the world, understandably, has most everybody's attention, the war in Ukraine between Ukraine and Russia still rages on and remains just as important now as it did before everything began in Israel. And what you heard there was the deployment after a year-long promise from President Biden uh, to deliver the ATACMS, it's the acronym, for this ballistic missile system that is very, very precise and very, very powerful. 
These are the types of things that can be, it can be uh, located using uh, radar from drones or from satellites or from airplanes overhead to pinpoint specific targets inside occupied territory and even into Russia itself. And that means that they can be particularly lethal. They carry a big payload and they can leave a lot of destruction. And so uh, as far as a weapon system goes, it is a major upgrade from what Ukraine has been deploying in the field, which has already been pretty good stuff, mainly because Western weapons are quite good by any, uh, by any stick of measurement. What that means for right now is, is continued success by Ukraine in blunting this counteroffensive that the Russians have been trying in the northern, northeastern part of the country just got a little bit easier. And when you combine that with the arrival of Western tanks and eventually Western aircraft like F-16s and others, uh, it is portending that by the time combat operations come out of the deep freeze of the oncoming winter, Ukraine is going to have a list of systems and capabilities quite different and quite more advanced than at this time last year. And what that means in combat, we will see, but it brings more and more pressure to bear on Russia to try and break this stalemate. And they haven't even been able to break this stalemate since they started the war, a war that largely began in stalemate. And of course, for the topic for today, let's, there is still a lot going on, a lot of uncertainty going on in Israel, and that hasn't changed in the last week. Uh, so let's hear a little bit of the latest from there as of this morning. And tonight, Hamas using hostages as human bargaining chips in an apparent effort to delay that attack. After releasing an American mother and daughter Friday, the group now says it's ready to free two elderly Israelis. We don't know if the offer is sincere. Acts are what speak, uh, not words, particularly coming from Hamas. But it's forcing the question, should Israel allow more time for negotiations? Fears growing of a wider war, including in Lebanon, where Israeli troops are exchanging fire with the Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah. And the possibility of a wider war remains very real, which is, I talked about at length last week, continued over this past week. Efforts by the United States, as well as a number of other countries around the world, to slow Israel down and effectively give them more time to get hostages, 222 is the current number that Israel estimates were taken on October 7th, to get those hostages out of Gaza or wherever they may happen to be before Israel pushes its ground offensive against northern Gaza, whenever that is scheduled to happen. The troops have been amassed for such an invasion for quite some time now. And over the weekend, finally, the first trucks with relief aid made it through the southern gate um, in Egypt, um, in Rafah, into Gaza. But, of course, those were just a handful of trucks, about 14 of them in the first round. And part of the problem is, um, on a daily basis before October 7th, uh, relief aid coming into Gaza to help that 2.1 million uh, population was about 700 trucks or so every day was required to help keep that going. This is, these are the first trucks within 14 days. And that's a major, major problem and a very small drop in the bucket. <coughs> Excuse me. But really what is most important today is, is besides the fact that uh, Hamas is now seemingly using hostages as a way to kind of delay, slow down the possibility of an Israeli attack, you also have the Israelis up, um, scaling up their air attacks. Their heaviest air attacks of the past two weeks just happened overnight with several hundred sites being hit. Uh, they've said that they are hitting Hamas uh, safe houses, Hamas leadership. 
and people on the ground are saying they're not hitting those people, they're hitting civilians. At this point, it's becoming really, really difficult to be able to ascertain who exactly is telling the truth in these situations. However, it is also a mistake to just assume that everybody is lying in these situations too. And that's part of what makes this so difficult. And as I said last week, in order for us to really sit with this situation, we have to become more comfortable with the discomfort of the difficulty of the situation and what it may bring moving forward. Okay, so that is our recap of the news. And we're going to just transition right into the subject for today. It's funny, last week when I got off the air, I was uh, my in-studio producer, Eric Ryder, who's sitting across from me again today. He said, I wonder if you're going to get any blowback <laughs> for last week's episode. And I said, well, probably. Uh, and and I, I will say, I'm not sure if I got blowback. I certainly got reaction. Um, and yet most of it was thoughtful. Some of it was not. And I tend to just ignore that because there are people who are just simply looking to score a point or see if they can get attention. So I kind of let those things go. But it reminded me of uh, an old saying, and I believe it was Adlai Stevenson, the great uh, liberal American politician from the middle of the 20th century who was seen as by many people as this moderate in all things, uh, even though he was quite, uh, quite liberal on a, on a number of issues uh, far before the progressive movement of today was liberal on them. And he once said, I believe it was him, <laughs> said the problem with being in the middle of the road is you can get hit by traffic going both directions. <laughs> and so, and so I, I thought of that last week when Eric asked that question. I've thought about it over the past week as I've, I've taken in uh, responses to last week's uh, episode. And I guess there is some truth to that, uh, be, you know, being in the middle of the road. Um, however, you can't get hit by that traffic middle of the road if you just kind of keep yourself a little bit above it. And I kind of envision myself being on a bridge over the roadway and kind of taking a look at what's going on because I didn't feel like I really got hit by anybody. But the fact of the matter is any blowback that I got or any of these comments that I got just underscored to me that I can stand on what I said last week uh, because more or less every single comment I got and I got some got comments from people who were very pro-Israel in this situation. I got comments from people who are very pro-Palestinian in this. Their comments all underscored, either explicitly or implicitly, my exact point about the need to pause <laughs> and the need to reflect on why we tend to gravitate to one side or another in situations like this. I compared it last week to lining up behind your sports teams, behind one flag on one side and one flag on the other side, and how little that does that is actually constructive. And so the various comments I got, uh, to give people credit, particularly those people that I know are probably listening to this right now, is that, yeah, you prove my point. It pays to be reflective. It pays to look in the mirror. It pays to hear something uncomfortable and then not immediately dismiss it and instead maybe acknowledge it out loud. So to everybody, so to everybody reached out who brought that kind of perspective, that was the majority of you. Thank you for showing and illustrating my larger point, the ability to step back and consider and wonder and sit with that discomfort. It can be so easy in situations like this where we feel like we're kind of in this middle of this deep breath before this big attack 
by Israel to think that we have to sort of make some big decisions about this. And there's an underlying element to this that I think is worth keeping in mind. In the end, Israel, Hamas, they're going to make the choices they're going to make, period. The degree to which they can be influenced by outside pressures remains to be seen. Certainly from the point of view of Israel, a state that has diplomatic relationships with other countries, military relationships, uh, intelligence relationships with other countries, those voices have to be taken seriously. And it sure seems like Israel has been listening and communicating with those entities. If there is strife behind the scenes, it is not leaking out into the press, which maybe underscores just how important this is diplomatically and politically for everybody to get this right. At the same time, if Hamas and now Hezbollah in the northern part of the country from, the, from southern Lebanon are launching rockets into Israel, uh, Israel is going to respond to that. Now, Israel also, over the past week, uh, twice hit the airports in Damascus and Aleppo, which are in Syria, which are areas that, where rockets have been fired from into Israel as well. And according to Israeli intelligence, this has not yet at least been publicly confirmed by other intelligence agencies around the world, including the U.S., Israeli intelligence is claiming they have found evidence among Hamas, um, among Hamas members that they have killed and among safe houses they've uncovered that there is an ongoing effort between Hamas, ISIS, and Al-Qaeda to coordinate on how to effectively continue to terrorize Israel, in particular, how to build and distribute chemical weapons. Again, that has not been verified or, or at least confirmed by other outside entities, which is probably what would need to happen in order for those things to probably be taken seriously by the outside world. But what is interesting is the degree to which, while there are those of us willing to pause and have the difficult conversations and to sit with the discomfort of all this, there are seemingly louder and louder voices polarizing in both directions on all of this. In particular, um, some pretty ugly strands of anti-Semitism have started to pop up in various protests around the world uh, with, you know, at universities, for example, in the United States and in the UK and in Europe, uh, with people holding up signs uh, that once upon a time would have been seen as Nazi-like in their depiction of Jews. Uh, one in particular that I saw said, uh, make the world clean again. And it was a Star of David uh, in a gas chamber. I mean, at a protest. These types of things, while they may not necessarily be representative of those who are protesting on behalf of Palestinian civilians, nevertheless remain a problem because those are the things that get the attention. No matter where they come from, those are the things that lead to clicks and lead to thumbs up and thumbs down on social media. Those are the things that go viral. And that is part of one of the challenges here is as those inflammatory things get said or get seen or get done, they are the things that get the most attention and they tend to drive not only what people are seeing about the conflict, but they also then tend to start driving the narrative. And you can probably see it in your own everyday conversations. If you're talking with people, well, I saw on social media this thing. Did you see that? Let me share this piece. Well, just to give you some perspective, every single day, 
there are literally around the world an estimated 10,000 media outlets, official media outlets that aren't just some guy's website <laughs> from around the world that write stories and have a responsibility and have a business reason for getting their stories out. That means there are a lot of different sources to sift through. There are a lot of different perspectives being put out there. Depending on where these things are in the world and depending on who their main constituents are, they're going to talk about them in different ways. And so it can make it really, really tough to know where to stand on this. And I see it happen quite a bit. And even some of the feedback I got um, from last week's show talked about this at length. I don't know who to trust anymore. I don't know if this station that I watch on a regular basis is getting this right. Or um, I don't know if I should read this newspaper anymore because they, don't, they didn't call the Hamas terrorists terrorists. They called them militants. I mean, these are all things we can get hung up on if we want to. Or we can keep pausing and keep kind of taking the long view on this and recognizing that there is a lot more at play here than simply what is just getting highlighted in every single 10, 15 second, 30 second soundbite about what's going on. This is as much of an examination of ourselves, it seems to me, as it is about any sort of attempt at objectivity about what is happening between Israel and Hamas. Because in the end, <laughs> a lot of truths can stand side by side, and that makes things quite difficult. Again, those truths being Hamas came across the border and slaughtered 1,400 Israeli civilians in cold blood. And they relished it, they filmed it, and they put it all out there for anybody to see. That is true. And Israel as a nation state, regardless of what anybody thinks of it and thinks of its policies and thinks of its government, I don't think too much of its ruling government, as a matter of fact, but it has a right to defend itself. It does. Every nation does from something like that. And the truth right next to it is it means it does not mean that Israel should have carte blanche to respond however they want, in whatever way they want, and not consider the longer term ramifications of what they're doing. And the truth that there are Palestinians who do not support Hamas because to challenge them in public or in the press would be a death sentence, that figures into this, that's a truth as well. We have to ask ourselves, from the, from the point of view of those Palestinian people, do people deserve what happens to them based on the actions of their own government? If we say yes, that means that we have, seems to me, a pretty simple view that whatever the ruling government is, is representative of every single person under that government. That does not apply in the case of Palestine, because there's a lot of different opinions in there, in that country. And it does not apply in Israel, which I talked about last week, has a lot of divisions within it and disagreement within it, as any democracy does. So when we come back from the break, I'll tell you a little bit of the questions that I got, some of the feedback that I got, and talk about it a little bit more, clarify a few other things. And then at the end of the show today, I'll talk to you a little bit about my announcement last week of this show going on hiatus. So come on back here in just a minute on This Show's All About You. Kids never have trouble dreaming about their future. 
the challenge is providing them the resources and opportunities to reach them. This is especially true from historically underserved communities. Fortunately, there's an organization that can help those dreams become reality. Airway Science for Kids helps underserved youth develop life and career pathways through exploration of aviation and aerospace. Using in-person and virtual programs, along with partnerships with companies, educational institutions, community health providers, and other resources, Airway Science for Kids helps students not only find their dream careers, but also learn how to better advocate for themselves and connect more effectively with their families, peers, and communities. To find out more, visit airsci.org. That's A-I-R-S-C-I dot org. Or email info at airsci.org. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace for all. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you. Again, talking about the situation between Israel and Hamas that remains kind of in this stasis for the past two weeks of uh, Israel massing troops on the northern border of Gaza, the difficulty of humanitarian aid getting into uh, Gaza for lots of different reasons, and, of course, the threat of a wider war resulting in this that, at worst, would bring in the United States on one side and Iran on the other, something which more or less all sides probably want to avoid other than really the most extreme hardliners uh, on the political right in places, organizations like Hamas and in states like Iran. Uh, that's the, that's the, the hope is, is that cooler heads prevail <laughs> across, across the board because once the gloves come off in a conflict like that, uh, things tend to go in their own direction. As I mentioned last week, the intentions when conflict breaks out can be one thing, uh, but very rarely do they go that way. Exhibit A, what's happening in Ukraine. <laughs> that has not gone the way Russia intended at all since early on, and it has not gone well for them ever since. And the cost to them literally is going to be generational in the long run, no matter how that war turns out. In the situation here, we can probably say it's a similar thing in that regard. Now, some of the responses I got last week, um, I'm not going to necessarily call them out verbatim because, you know, these were direct messages to me or emails to me. And like I said, the majority of them were very thoughtful uh, because there seemed to be an awareness among them. And I appreciate that about my listeners of the seriousness of this and that things are oftentimes more complex in some areas. But then in other areas, uh, we look for simplicity. Right. And what I wrote back to several people was, you know, again, this is a question of what we value and usually a reflection of what we value. For me, uh, I strongly believe and have held on to for a long time, and this is the roots of my, my scholar roots as a um, scholar of the Holocaust and of Nazi Germany, that any group of people targeted because of their race or their religion or their creed, their sexual orientation, anything like that, targeted for elimination, oppression, uh, that's wrong and should be wrong across the board. So that applies to anyone trying to wipe Israel off the map, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it also means there's a lot to criticize longer term in how Israel has understood and reacted to and responded to and handled the situation with Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and elsewhere. Of course, the question, the first question I got is, are those even comparable 
when it is clear that Israel's neighbors have been trying to destroy it since day one? I understand the question. What I ask in that, and this is how I responded to that, is like, okay, on one hand, you know, this person said, Palestinians have been dealing with 70 years plus of this reality of displacement, living in places that aren't their ancestral homes, and, I pointed out to them, and not being taken in by their Arab neighbors and not being taken care of by their Arab neighbors. I always continually have to point this out. So I pointed this out to this person. I said, yes, you're right. For 70 years, they have been dealing with that. And for 70 years, Israel has been dealing with the reality that their neighbors are literally trying to push them into the sea and have said so on a number of different occasions. And to give you a little bit of perspective on this, Israel is the size of New Jersey. And its most populated areas in Israel are only about 18 kilometers wide from the Mediterranean to the inland areas where the desert starts. 18 kilometers. Wherever you are listening, find on the map what is 18 kilometers from you. And imagine that area filled with the majority of the 9.3 million people who live in Israel. And you start getting an understanding of why those types of threats, those types of actions, rockets being launched into their country, is literally a threat to their existence. It's funny, when we talk about Tel Aviv, the main city in Israel, being hit by rockets from Hamas fired from the Gaza Strip, take a look at the map again. Tel Aviv is 44 kilometers from the Gaza Strip. And it's considered out of danger, quote-unquote. And it's not. During the wars conducted against Israel in 48, in 67, in 73, when there were nation states attacking them with tanks, and jet aircraft, that type of thing. A jet aircraft in Egyptian airspace, for example, moving north-northeast at supersonic speed would move from Egyptian airspace to being over the city of Tel Aviv in about 98 seconds. That's not a lot of time to make decisions. What happens when a country that is that size, that is that small, that is that under siege and literally feels under siege because the actions of its surrounding neighbors show that it's under siege, what effect does that have long term on how they identify themselves, how they see themselves, how they think the rest of the world sees them? Particularly when, as I talked about last week, their existence is rooted in the experience of the Holocaust where one country with some collaboration of other nations nearby tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. And countries that could have helped prior to that didn't. You put all of that together. And I think even if you don't condone, and remember, we can understand something without condoning it. I think we can better understand why Israel might be wanting to take a hardline position here. Particularly when it comes to the most successful, quote unquote, attack against Israelis in their history. And it was against civilians, men, women, and children. It's awful. So that was on that side. And to others who brought up from a much more pro-Israeli stance, if we're going to break them into two camps, I hesitate to do that. But those who had more sympathy, I guess, in their statements or, or identified more with the Palestinian side of this, 
um, or I should say didn't identify with that, with the, with the Israeli side, I asked that larger question. I said, to what degree does, if it's 70 years of being, wanting to be wiped off face of the earth by your neighbors, what is the trauma of a group of people 70 plus years and their descendants being off their ancestral land and perhaps even more importantly, because that becomes a nebulous concept after a few generations, being in a situation where they do not feel that A, they govern themselves, which they didn't until 1994, they don't have the same prospects or the same benefits or the same affluence or the same opportunity at that affluence in their own neighborhoods when they can literally look across a border and see a more affluent lifestyle on the other side of these borders. And years and years and years of that resentment and messaging from within, particularly from radical components within their populations, that their situation is entirely Israel's fault. What does that shape? What does that create? What does that allow for, for as Palestinian children are born and what they grow into? And what about the responsibility of individual nations, of so-called civilized nations, to take care of refugees, to look out for the least fortunate. And I remind people, particularly those people in the United States, we ask similar questions in a completely different context about things like, what about people at the border? What is our responsibility to them? Whether we think they should come up here or not, where does the human factor, the individual human factor, one by one, small group by small group, when does that become more paramount than the larger political significance or the political usage of those populations? And I've always thought for the longest time that Israel could go a very long way to neutralizing the most radical claims made against them by continuing to doggedly pursue policies on a humanitarian level first that make things better for, Pal for Palestinians rather than simply just focus on a political solution when Palestinian politics is so rife with infighting. And yes, corruption, that's a reality. I've always thought that. And I've always thought that Palestinians could go a long way to affecting change in perceptions and perhaps affecting change within Israel itself by taking a page from Martin Luther King Jr. and nonviolent protests. And it's worth asking the question, why do those things not happen on either side? And those answers aren't easy coming. But that's the whole point. I don't think they're supposed to be. And it's tough right now because all of us, at least those of us listening outside of Israel and Gaza, it's tough because while we're having these debates, decisions and actions are being taken on the ground there that most of us can simply do nothing about but sit and watch. And that makes things extraordinarily frustrating. And it makes us fearful. And it has become yet another way for particularly in the United States, but elsewhere, for people to find more reasons to yell at each other and to disagree with one another.
and to try and score political or social points on this, whether it be in the halls of Congress, whether it be in the chat rooms of social media platforms. Very rarely does it seem to be in person <laughs> in conversations. But that itself is indicative of a couple things. First, to me, yes, an understood importance that what's going on in this part of the world is a part of a larger security question for the rest of the world. Sure. It's also, <laughs> it's also indicative to me of the degree to which more and more of us know less and less about this part of the world and really want to line up on one side or the other so that we can say where we identify with a certain group or where we stand rather than really get to the root of what is actually happening and take a look at what is possible for a new approach or even if a new approach can't be found. A way to live with the discomfort that there may not be some perfect solution to this that exists in any realm of reality. Because most of us are not the decision makers in all of this. And that's difficult. That is not fun to sit with. And so what we can do then is choose what do we want to advocate for. And one of the things that I picked up on in a lot of my interactions about this, and then just kind of taking a look at articles posted, when you look past the people who are just clearly looking for a fight on those things, a lot of people kind of backing the approach that the United States and its allies have taken in this, encouraging Israel to slow down, allow for getting more hostages out, and to work diligently with them to take the time to prevent whatever their response is going to be to Hamas from A, affecting Palestinian civilians any more than it needs to, and second, preventing this from turning into the very thing that Hamas wants it to become, a larger war that, if it gets big enough, will literally become about Israel's existence or not. That's the interesting thing. In the midst of all of this caterwauling on both sides of this, some of it justified, some of it not, there doesn't seem to be this big recognition that the majority of people who are looking for things to slow down, who are not saying Israel's all in the wrong or Israel's all in the right or that the Palestinians are all wrong or the Palestinians are all right, the very thing they want to see <laughs> is actually the policy of the majority of countries on the planet. That should mean something. But boy, that doesn't get the clicks, does it? That doesn't get people to watch the videos that people want them to see. And if any of you have been paying attention to articles about the amount of disinformation that has been coming out about what's going on in Israel, Hamas, it's crazy. There are people posting footage from video games saying it's a Israeli strike, something like that. And people are buying it. There are other people dusting off footage from years ago of combat operations, not even between Israel and any of its neighbors, saying, here's this, here's this. And people believe it. 
and it goes viral. There is something to be said of our need to pause simply because there is so much out there that should get us to pause. And if there are literally 10,000 different legitimate media outlets out there, it should go without saying that perhaps we need to be a little more diligent, a little more reflective, a little more considering of where these things are coming from, who's writing them, the fact that nobody is going to get one account of this exactly right or in every sort of perspective imaginable. That is going to take time to develop. When I was in graduate school studying history, one of the things that we heard a lot from our friends in the journalism school, and we did a lot of work with them, a lot of collaborative work, interdisciplinary work that was fascinating. They would say, well, you know, the thing is, journalism is the first draft of history. And we used to chuckle at that, you know, depending on how we felt about journalism. Some would say, well, it's a pretty crappy first draft. It would get a D. <laughs> you know, sometimes there's truth to that. But what it can be, of course, is that important starting point. This is what, when this was reported back in whatever year, this is what people were able to glean at the time. These were the assumptions being made, the questions being asked, what wasn't known at the time. And why, wasn't, why weren't these things known at the time? All of that is the creation of solid history over time. And while it would be great to be able to apply that lens to contemporary situations, it's simply impossible in the midst of it, particularly in something as widespread, expansive, free-flowing, and quick-moving as what is happening in Israel. So that makes it very difficult to do. When we come back from the second break, here on this show is all about you. We'll continue with a few more thoughts on this moving forward as things seem to be moving towards an escalation and a few other thoughts on my next step. So come on back after a minute on this show is all about you. I'm Julia Cannell, Executive Director of Airway Science for Kids. We sponsor this show is all about you because it exemplifies our core values, connectivity, communication, emotional intelligence, positivity, respect, and the power of possibility. Help us introduce historically excluded youth to all of these through the wonder and promise of aviation and aerospace careers. Airway Science for Kids, providing aerospace to all. Visit airsci.org to learn more and to contribute your talents. Welcome back, everyone, to this show is all about you, kind of rounding the final turn heading for home on this episode, talking a little bit more about some of the feedback from last week's episode on uh, Israel Hamas, where I really encouraged everyone just to slow down a little bit and to get past what has become the dominant narrative, particularly on social media, of people choosing extreme positions um, or actually, for lack of not so much necessarily extreme as very monolithic positions on what is happening, whether they side with Israel or what they side with the Palestinian people. Uh, what gets lost in all this, of course, I think are some larger truths. Um, the majority of people should all be able to say they're against Hamas, <laughs> one way or the other, because that is a murderous organization that has made very clear that its intent for its own existence is not to take care of the Palestinian people under its charge, but to eliminate the state of Israel. The very fact that you do not have groups even within the Palestinian Authority 
that are doing this openly is a problem. The very fact that Arab nations nearby have not done the same is a problem. And the reason there's a long-standing history there of Arab states like Jordan and Egypt and Iraq and Syria refusing to do that and allowing the Palestinians, the Palestinian problem to remain a sore in the middle of the Middle East, because not only does that stick it to Israel, but it also keeps attention off their own failings for their own people. And that should be a part of this equation. And for the last two weeks, honestly, those states have been skating by. In particular, no one seems to be beating down doors or holding protests in Cairo demanding that the Egyptians open that southern border to Gaza to let in more humanitarian aid. Why isn't that happening? That's a really good question. You want to know why it's a good question, everybody? Because nobody's asking it and nobody's answering it. So all those things together, <laughs> there's plenty here, right, to unpack. But this is why it is imperative, particularly at a time of crisis, for those people who care about what's happening here to take a deep breath and recognize that even for people who study this for a living, who are experts on this part of the world, all the dynamics of what is going on here are very difficult to follow, to ascertain, just to find out what's going on and understand what's going on. Never mind make judgments on. Which means going off after watching 15 minutes of something on social media does not put you in a position of authority, nor should it, on what should be done. That doesn't mean that voices don't matter. And that doesn't mean that people who are responding to these things don't have the ability to consider. But based on what I've seen, based on what I read, and I read about this stuff a lot, there are a lot more people out there needing to do a lot more considering and a lot more pausing and a lot more reflecting on the realities of this situation than there are those who really have it nailed down. Because it is very difficult. There are historical factors, there are trauma factors on an individual and collective basis for Israelis, for Palestinians, that are a part of this dynamic. And that is part of what makes all of this so tragic. Because in the end, it is tragic. The fact that groups of people like this are in this situation, regardless of who, quote-unquote, is at fault, is sad. And it seems to me, rather than continuing to flood the airwaves and flood social media with who is to blame, what's, who is actually doing what, how about instead of blame, we start taking a look at responsibility for how to best move forward. Who is responsible for making decisions that are best, as best as possible, for the people involved? And no matter where we come down on who we support and to what degree and why, the Israeli government has an enormous amount of responsibility here. And I think there's an awareness of that. <laughs> there's also responsibility, seems to me, in the Palestinian Authority. Groups that, when left to themselves, would fight against Hamas to actually isolate them more, but they haven't done so out of fear for their own positions. There needs to be some courage on that front.
There should also be recognition that the Arab neighbors of Israel have done very little to help this situation. And the very fact that they've done so little to help means they're only hurting the situation. And these are some countries that actually have diplomatic relationships with Israel, officially recognize their right to exist, including Jordan and Egypt, particularly those two. Jordan in particular also is a major ally of the United States. And Jordan, on a certain level, has gotten by in the world by playing a very delicate balancing act between its connections to the United States and Israel and its firm footing in the Arab world. At some point, if those states truly disagree with what Hamas has done and the situation that their actions have created here. This dynamic started with that attack. If they're not willing to do that, then they're part of the problem. And that's not good either. So, with all of that taken together, people, somebody asked me, well then what should we do? If all of this is so complicated, if all this, what do we know what to believe? And my response to that was, well, hey, there's nothing you can do as far as stopping the situation or changing the situation other than making clear your position. But you can only make that clear to so many people, like online or to your Congress, to your congressional representative, whoever it might be. You can do all that. But what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? What do you feel? What do you believe? What matters most to you? And if we know what our values are, we should be able then to say to this situation, in this situation, say, okay, if I truly value these three things or these factors, the safety of individual citizens and their right to live in peace, if, you, if that is a value for you, you can't necessarily take that and jam it into the situation to make it fit the side that you seemingly feel the most emotion towards. Supposed to go the other way around. Things should fit into our values and how we choose to respond to them. Not, I'm going to respond to this and make my values fit that. Because then that's shoehorning ourselves into a situation that really leads with our maybe worst instincts rather than the bedrock of what we value. It's why I can come in here and say, I stand on everything I said last week. Not because I'm stubborn about it, but because I know exactly what I value when it comes to this. And it starts with, I value people around the world not killing each other over honestly pointless reasons like religious differences and ethnic differences and even over historical grievances whether they be accurate or embellished. Because in the end, <laughs> we're all human beings here on this big blue marble. And another value under that is we were all created to become our best versions of ourselves. And we should have the opportunity to do that. A group like Hamas did not allow 1,400 people to have that opportunity. And that deserves some justice and some protection for the people who were not killed.
It also means I want there to be consideration by those who have been right, have, who have been wronged in this, in this case, Israel, to recognize their larger connection to humanity as a whole. And as I said last week, history is the story of civilizations rising, thriving, and seemingly falling. There were lots of reasons for all of those in all areas of the world. Increasingly now, we live, though, in a decidedly global civilization more than ever before, which means unlike past eras where empires could rise and fall without the rest of the world knowing, we don't have that luxury now. And because of the nature of technology and weapons, our margin for error is smaller than it's ever been. And actually, that shouldn't be the problem that we make it out to be. It should be a way to underscore across the board what our shared human values could and should be. As I've said many times on this show before, the inherent integrity and value of every single human being just by the very virtue of them being alive. And anyone who seeks to violate that in another or another group for whatever reasons should be stopped, should be held accountable, should be brought to justice, whatever that may look like. And it will be imperfect. And it should all be done out of a sense of grim necessity and acceptance of difficulty in making it happen so that innocents are not harmed. To me, those are the best ways for actually in the long run for the truest forms of justice to be realized, even though that may take a long time. It also would allow more opportunities for more people to change their minds, to find new avenues, to connect with other people, to do their own work, to get comfortable with the discomfort so they can have an opportunity to live and truly live and thrive and develop all those things that are so important to each of us as human beings. That's why I can keep standing on it every week. And it's not popular. You know how many times I've been called wishy-washy in my life? No, it's not wishy-washy in this case. I've been wishy-washy on some things before. But no, not on this. This is based in my core values, where I stand on this. And for me, the most important thing is for me to remember these are all human beings. All human beings responsible for their actions, responsible for the choices they make, responsible for the words they say. And we have a responsibility to help fellow human beings not go down pathways of destruction for themselves and for more human beings. And I'll stand by that. Okay, in the last couple minutes today, I mentioned last week that I've made the decision to, I guess, at least end this show, at least for the time being. I'm going to call it a hiatus, actually. And for this show, uh, at the end of my next episode, short period of time, there's some reasons for that, that um, none of them are bad, honestly. I started this show a while back, and I've enjoyed it immensely. I've enjoyed coming in, talking about this. I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about the world. I've learned a lot about doing, type, doing radio shows, podcasts from all of this. And one of the things I valued the most is never in my life have I felt like I have contributed more to a public discussion and gotten my own voice, literally, 
out there than I have doing this show. I taught for a lot of years in classrooms and found a lot of reward in that. I no longer do that. But I always struggled with feeling like when I was in academia that I was only mainly talking to other people in academia, which has value, certainly does. But I found myself wanting to talk to more and more people outside of academia and to people who weren't necessarily in the classroom, but people who cared about all these things nonetheless. And I wanted to contribute to that, and I've done that. However, as I'll talk about in more depth next week, um, I'm not quite sure where this show continues to fit in where my life has been going. I started this show with some expectations of what I wanted it to do, where I thought my life would go, and that has shifted in the last, well, six months, but particularly in the last few months. Life has happened. What's that saying attributed to John Lennon? Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. Well, those other plans were their one thing. Life was another. And at the same time, I kind of like where it's going. And so I have some things that I've chosen that I need to take some time to invest in a little bit more. And I only have so much time and so much bandwidth and so much energy day to day. I just turned 50 after all. <laughs> so I'm going to concentrate on that for a little while. And so because of that, when I took a look at what, you know, what my friend Tony Santabria says, what's in your buckets? What were some things in, the, in my life bucket that I needed to put down for a while? Well, this show is one of them, at least for the time being. While I work on these other things that will largely benefit all the things that I want to be doing, and at some point in the future when I hope to pick this show up again, just add it, add to its quality and add to its message and add to its volume. That's my hope. So that's the choice. But if you want to find out the, the process behind that, join me next week for a decidedly personal episode of this show is all about you to hear a little bit about this, hear about the new things that I'm going to be doing, what I'm trying to expand on. And don't worry, I'm still going to be accessible and out there for you to hear um, from on a regular basis. So thank you for joining me for this episode of this show is all about you. Lots of thank yous, of course, in all of this. This show is all about you is produced and distributed by Hubbard Radio Seattle. Eric Ryder, as always, my in-studio producer, editor, and mix master. Thank you, Eric. The show is made possible by the generous sponsorship of Airway Science for Kids. Check them out at airside.org. And the original theme music is by Dave Nelson of Lens Group Media. Thanks for contributing to this episode and all that went well for me this week. Julia Cannell, Tawny and Dave Santabria, Dean Cameron, Bruce and Cindy Bullard, Phil McCoy, Ken and Margaret Winnikin, Ann Foster, Brittany Johnson, Mary Olson, Seth Mormon, Phil McCoy, Ashley Kniebel, Katie Beck, and Eric Crema. And thank you, listeners. I could not do this for you without you. And to send you into the next, uh, next week, an original haiku to end, as always. Wars between peoples can never survive when we see each other's lives. Chins up, everyone.